Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 2. In the evening, what we've been doing is walking through the book of 1 Samuel. We had our first one two weeks ago, and then we had the picnic last week. Um, so we are back in, and we looked at, last week we looked at the entirety of chapter 1. And the entirety of chapter 1, is the central figure is Hannah. Hannah is married to a faithful man, Elkanah. We say faithful, not perfect, because he had two wives. We talked about that, why we can still look at him as a faithful man, even though he had uh, a black eye, in a sense, or a blind eye towards having more than one wife. But the Lord still used that having of more than one wife to drive Hannah to prayer, for her to call out to God to bring about who he intends to bring about. He intends to bring about Samuel, because the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is all centered around the coming of and the establishing of David as king. David is significant not just because he did cool things and he led a pretty good life that we should follow, but because he is, the, is a sort of forerunner of Christ, less of a forerunner, more of a type or a shadow of Christ that the king of kings was gonna come from a king named David. And so 1 Samuel is building towards that. But before we get to David, we have to get to Samuel because Samuel is the one who anoints David and Samuel is the one who straddles the, the era of the judges and the kings. He's the last judge. He himself is also a priest and he is also a prophet. So he is kind of the pinnacle of the judges and the last one that there will be. So where we left it off last week, Samuel has been born uh, Hannah's prayers have been answered, and he was left at the temple, probably at about three years old, at least three years old, maybe older. And what we're gauging that off of was basically the age of these bulls that Hannah brings for the sacrifice when she takes Samuel to Shiloh to leave him there with Eli, the priest. Um, so now he worships there. We left it off uh, in verse 27 and 28 of chapter one, for this young boy I prayed, says Hannah, and Yahweh has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him, Samuel, to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to Yahweh. So he worshiped Yahweh there. He worshiped there. Now, Hannah has no other children at where we're about to pick up. We're picking up at chapter two, verse one, and we're only gonna go through verse 11. But Hannah has no other children yet. She just took the son that she prayed for, wept for. She was weeping and praying so fervently at the temple that Eli looks at her and thinks that she's drunk. And that son, she drops off and goes home. Now you would imagine that what you would, the state you'd be left in in that is knowing I did the right thing, but I am devastated. I kept my vow to God, but I almost wish that I hadn't because I would have wanted to have that son. We're gonna see the exact opposite of that because what verses one through 10 are is Hannah's prayer song. It's a prayer, but it's structured like a psalm and psalm just means song. And so we'll, it, 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 I've grown to call it Hannah's prayer song because it, it has a, a poetic eloquence to it, certainly if you're reading it in Hebrew, but it has a poetic eloquence to it, but she is genuinely praying to God after having left her son. 
So let's read these verses. Verse one, then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I am glad in your salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Do not multiply, speaking so very proudly. Let arrogance not come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but those who stumble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. She who has many children languages." Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his holy ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by power shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, ladies who have had children, is that the what you did on the way home from having the baby? I mean, this is, this is robust. It's so robust and, and this is, and uh, uh, something you need to watch out for with liberalism. It's so robust and so theological that all liberal theologians think that this can't be Hannah. They say, well, this has got to be added in after the book was written because she, there's no way she said this. Samuel had to have written this or whoever finished the rest of 2 Samuel after Samuel himself dies added that psalm in there because there's no way I mean, she's a woman, she's uneducated, and nobody would do that. That's just Bible denier that sounds intelligent. This is Hannah speaking. I want you to follow the way that it lays out. Verse one is just a call to worship. See what she says? My heart is exulting. My horn is exalted. Horn just means... Um, like, like an animal's head, when, when, you're, when the horns go up, the, ha- the animal is, is strong, is, uh, is, is proud, and don't think of proud in like sinful, arrogant sense. But she's doing that. Why is she saying to do that? Because why? She's glad in God's salvation, so much so that her mouth speaks boldly against her enemies. So this is everybody listen to who God is. And this is how we should be marked as the people of God. And then she goes in verses two and three and talks about God's supremacy, Yahweh's supremacy. There's no one holy like Yahweh, no one. Indeed, there is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then she says to to the arrogant, she says, don't multiply, speaking so very proudly. Let arrogance not come out of your mouth for Yahweh is a God of knowledge and with him actions are weighed. Don't speak sinfully and arrogantly towards God because God knows everything and he's gonna weigh everything. And since putting you in the scales, don't do that because God is supreme. And then she moves from the supremacy of God to his sovereignty. And sure, his sovereignty is most um, 
strikingly seen in the contrasts of what he does with the poor and with the rich, with the hungry, with the full, moving back and forth, that the bows of the mighty are shattered. Those who stumble gird on strength. So the, the robust, strong military man has his strength just blown away. But the weak, the stumbling, they are suddenly strong. Verse five, those who are full hire themselves out for bread. You're having to go get a job because you're not full anymore. But the hungry, they cease to hunger. And even the barren gives birth to seven. And she who has but, she who has many children languishes. The juxtaposition, why is the barren woman having children and why is the fruitful woman languishing? Because of the sovereignty of God, because of who God is. She goes on and says, Yahweh puts to death in verse six and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. Everybody's status is from the hand of God. Everybody's status this is what Hannah is saying. He raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory. God is sovereign. And what he does is he takes the lowly and brings them to himself. He takes those who are needy, pulls them out of the ash heap, the place of mourning, the place of destitution. And what do they get instead? A seat of glory. Because God can do that. And then she says this, the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's. He sets the world on them. It's almost like you're imagining these, these massive cosmic pillars and God takes the globe and just puts it on there. Whatever structure, in, in her mind, whatever's holding up the world, the planet, the globe, everything that we know, everything we understand, God set it up on that. Whatever that is, she's not claiming to be a, uh, a physicist, let alone an astrophysicist. She's not claiming to be an astronomer of any kind, but she knows the world is set in a place and God is the one who did it. And he keeps, verse nine, the feet of his holy ones, but the wicked are silenced in darkness. Why? Because it's not by power a man shall prevail. Nobody prevails because they're powerful. They're prevailing or failing because God has decided that. This is the heart of Hannah. This is what she's saying. And then lastly, what does this all point to? I mean, this is already like extremely thorough, profound, deep from the heart of this woman who's just given away her baby to the ministry. And she says this in verse 10, because this is here we see Yahweh's savior. Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. What is he gonna do? There's an end coming, Hannah says. And those who rebel against the God of the universe, they will be put down. They will be dismayed. He will render justice. And it's not a perversion of justice, it's actual justice. But he's gonna do something to someone individually, specifically. What does it say? His king and his anointed. We are supposed to understand that as messianic, that he is, she is now speaking of prophetically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that she is speaking about the coming savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that that is what he will give strength to his king, Jesus, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. He will raise up to prominence, 
to visibility, to strength and to power, his anointed. Jesus is called the anointed one. That's who he is. So we see this content here. We just briefly kind of scan through it. Here's what I want to do next. I want you to compare this to other women who have had miraculous births. Look at Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, the first miraculous birth that happens in Luke chapter one is that of John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter one, verse 24, his mom's name is Elizabeth, his dad is Zechariah. Verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, Zechariah's wife, conceived. After never having conceived, being too old to do so, she conceived and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me and the days which, when he looked upon me to take away my disgrace among men. That's also a theologically packed statement. The Lord has dealt with me. He is sovereign over me and he is gracious to me. I was cast down in the dust like Hannah's song, but now I have been raised up. And then you go further into Luke chapter one and to Mary's prayer song. It's called uh, in, in more high church and liturgical worlds, Mary's Magnificat, the song that she sings, also a part of a miraculous birth. Now, Mary was too young to have been ever classified as barren, but we see this long trail of barren women whom God keeps that way until he gives a son of significance for redemptive history to get to this last birth of grand significance. And it's the Lord Jesus. And Mary says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. I want you to see how it's almost shot for shot, Hannah. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. He has looked upon the humble state of his slave this time on all generations will count me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. This is the same thing. This is the same prayer. Call to worship, verses 46, 47, and 48. God has done great things. Everybody listen. And then God's supremacy, verses 49 and 50. God's sovereignty, verses 51, 52. 53, and then you get to God's savior at the end. What does she say? Verse 55, he, God, spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Seed singular. Like Galatians 3 says, it was seed singular. And what have we been looking for in redemptive history since Genesis 3.15? The seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, the promised coming one. And Mary says right here in verse 55 to Abraham and his seed forever. The seed of Abraham is who she ends with. Just like Hannah ended with the anointed king coming from still looking at Christ. So here's how we apply, conclude 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. 
Blessings must cause worship. They must. And if they don't, then something is wrong with us. Hannah received this blessing and she just bursts into worship. They must cause worship. And that's what Hannah does. But also worship must be according to the truth. Hannah says explicitly true things about God in gratitude towards God for what he has done for her. So it must cause worship and that worship must be according to the truth. She's not doing whatever she wants. She's not, uh, and, and all the varieties and aberrations of things that people call worship these days, Hannah's not doing any of that. She's singing, praying to her God. And that is according to the truth. So what we can also draw from these 10 verses is that theology is essential and possible for everyone. There is no way that you, no matter who you are here in this church and in the modern world, there's no way that you know less about God or have access to less about God than Hannah. And there is no way that you are less educated just in the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, than Hannah. There's no way that you are. So if this woman, who is the second wife in a marriage, who can only go to worship a handful of times a year, and it's a big ordeal, you pack up the caravan of animals because you gotta eat and you gotta sacrifice. You gotta take the whole family and you gotta go across the country to Shiloh where the tabernacle was at that time overseen by the priest, all of that. But yet Hannah knows all of these things. I'm convicted in my week studying this. Do I pray like this? Is this what comes out of me when I've been blessed by God? Or is it just baby babbling? Hannah has profound truths about God. She's thinking about the pillars of the earth She's looking at the juxtaposition of of the rich and the poor, the wealthy and the non, the hungry and the full, seeing God changing those situations, but God ordaining the beginning of those situations. This is a woman who is so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ or to, to, to Yahweh, God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that she cannot help but burst out into theology. Theology, we get scared of that word, we get scared of the word doctrine. All that means is true things about God. That's all it means. So don't think that it's some kind of credentialed academic status level. It's just true things about God. If you've ever said something true about God and you weren't quoting or reading directly from the scripture, you just did theology. That's what Hannah was doing. Then it becomes scripture because of the sovereign ordination of the Holy Spirit. But theology is essential and possible for everyone. We must know who God is and what we believe from the scriptures, and we all can. That, that barrier, that um, barrier to entrance, it, we've made it too high. You sit and you, I, those books in my office, you think, I mean, he's, he's real smart. No, he's not. He's a jock who majored in communication and barely kept it passing all the way through college. You can do this too. You can know God because Hannah can. 
And Hannah does. And that's what comes out of her and this bursting forth of worship because of the blessing of God. Fourthly, look at these miraculous births. This miraculous birth, as we read the Old Testament, what I want you to see always is the Bible is a connected story that it's going end to end. Every other religious text is just a a coalescing of smatterings of semi-smart sounding sayings. There's no coherence, there's no flow, there's no story, but when you sit down and open up a Bible, you are reading a plan, a redemptive historical plan. It's full of poetry, true. It's full of truly didactic or just teaching straightforward things like the epistles of Paul, that's true. It's full of uh, numbers and counting like we read today, but it's mostly story shot through because that's how God has created us to think. And he created a Bible that speaks to us in the way that we were created. So when we see these miraculous births, Hannah and Samuel prepare us for Mary and Jesus. This kind of thinking, this kind of moment that God needing, not in a sense that God needs anything, but the people of God needing a mediator and they're not being a good one. We're gonna learn next week about how horrible the one they had was, Eli and his sons, and God providing one miraculously through a woman who never should have been that one. And then we get to Jesus and we're like, this was all preparing for this wonderful bursting forth of a miraculous birth that we can actually be saved by, not just encouraged by. And it acknowledges God getting all the glory in births like this and God's acknowledged savior. That's why we wanted to compare Hannah and Mary's prayer because it is just so similar. The humble being in the dirt, the hungry being full, the seed of Abraham and the savior or the, the, the anointed king. And then lastly here, as we close, what happened to Hannah in getting Samuel and being, having Samuel being born because her heart is broken to, to have a child. She says she, in verse 15 of chapter one, I have poured out my soul before Yahweh. She's pouring it out and she wants a child so that she can give him back. I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life. She gets what she wants. So often what we do is we skip to the end, Hannah got what she wanted, and then we work backwards. She got what she wanted, she prayed and did these things. So therefore the application to take away from the story is, what do you want that's not overtly sinful or stupid because we don't tell people about those things. But what do you want and then work backwards and just do what Hannah did and you'll get what you want. We know that that's not always the case not even the majority of the time is that the case. And we're not supposed to take that point away from this story at all. Hannah got, in a sense, a very small salvation. She was destitute, she was crushed, she was low, she was humiliated. And what she got was a salvation from that. She's no longer marked with some kind of version of a scarlet letter as a barren woman. It's definitely your fault because your husband's other wife is doing great and having tons of kids, so you're the problem. She's freed from that stigma. But the point is, is that every small salvation wrought for you, brought about for you by God should point you to the bigger narrative.
We don't leave it here and say, see, Hannah got what she wanted. What do you want? Ask God. No, we see Hannah got a small little piece. She got a small little salvation. That's supposed to point you towards the coming kingdom of which you are a citizen. It's supposed to point you to the greater, the greater salvation. Because Hannah could have been fruitful with children from the jump, just like Peninnah, and then where would she be? Nowhere. She would not have been changed. She would not have been grown, stretched, endured, and now profoundly now connected to where she can pray in a way that she does. So God bringing her to that point is supposed to send her forward, all of us forward to the coming salvation. If all we get from 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is that if you pray fervently, so much so that you look nuts at church, then you'll get what you want. And as long as you're willing to let God have a piece of that thing when you get it, then you'll get what you want. We've missed the whole thing. That's us splashing in a tide pool and ignoring the ocean. The point is, is that this is supposed to see, look what God can do. Look what God has done. Then think beyond the physical and the here and now to the eternal for the there and then that he's preparing for you. So all of these little tiny salvations, they're just a microcosm of a macro movement. It's a micro salvation sending your eyes forward to the macro salvation of your soul for eternity, not just removing the stigma of a barren woman. That's not the point. The point is what can God not do if he did this? And Hannah got it. She got it all the way through because what she doesn't mention here uh, or what she doesn't major on here in her prayer is barrenness. She mentions it one time in the second half of verse five, but the majority is the glory of God. And even in that, she's just talking about God because he puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. He makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. She's focusing on him, not what she got. So she didn't miss the point. She didn't miss the ocean for the tide pool. And so I hope that that's what we would do as well when we read stories like this, that we don't use them to reverse engineer getting things that we want, but looking at, look what God did in that tiny micro salvation. Can he not be trusted for the macro salvation of my own soul? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we do thank you for our sister Hannah. We're so encouraged by her because we've all been in her situation in some form or fashion, something that is good that we are desirous of, something that is hurting that we are wanting relief from. And Father, if we haven't been there, we know that we will, we will be there soon. We'll be there eventually. So we thank you for our sister and we thank you for the faithfulness that she models for us, that, that you and, and your sovereignty raised her up as an, a, an example for us, and that she was so committed to you, that her heart was subservient to you, bound to you and your will, that she didn't even want what she wanted for herself. And it's not a wrong thing, Lord, we know, to want to be a mother and to have those kids and raise them. We thank you for her heart modeling that humility. Or may we see that not only you are faithful in time and in space and you do give us uh, our daily bread, 
but that beyond that you are mighty to save and that you give us these these micro salvations, these microcosms of the macro movement. Help us to look beyond that, that that none of our Christian life and none of what we're doing, Lord, is, is just for the here and just for the now. And Lord, we're, we're even convicted about that as we think about the building. Whether or not we get it has no bearing on our salvation. There's no bearing upon your glory the, and the praise and the worship that we owe to you. So Lord, we pray, along with our sister Hannah, along the same lines, that if you were to give that building to us, that we would turn right around and give it back to you because it is yours. And we'd use it for your glory, that no created thing would lay claim to it as theirs or his or hers, but it is yours. But Father, may our hearts not miss the, the depth of Hannah, our sister's prayer, that you set the world on its pillars and it's not by strength that any man prevails, but it is by your hand alone. And we are here for, where Her- for what Hannah ended on, the anointed king. We are here to proclaim him, to worship him, to be encouraged as we grow in him, and to share him with all who will listen. So may, Father, in your mercy and in your grace, would you, would you establish us? mature us in that thinking that we would be like our sister Hannah who lived so many years ago. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the Christ that it proclaims. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.